Welcome to Character Explorations, a podcast production of the Wentz Center for Character Education at the University of Dubuque. I'm Annalee Ward, the director of the Wentz Center, and our guest today is Reverend Gregory B. Drumwright, pastor of the Greensboro, North Carolina Church, the Citadel. When he's not preaching, teaching at High Point, or serving as a North Carolina Courts Commissioner, he's advocating for justice whether it's supporting George Floyd's family through the trial, speaking with leaders of NASCAR, or promoting voting rights, Reverend Drumwright stays engaged. Welcome, Reverend Drumwright. I'm honored to be with you. Thank you. Well, I'm excited to hear from you because we had the privilege last night of hearing you as our Michael Lester Went character lecturer and learned a little bit more about your story. But for our listeners who weren't there, what started you on this journey? Well, definitely not by accident, but I firmly believe by providence. Um, When I met me, I was not a pastor. (laughs) Uh, When I met me, um, I was just a a curious little kid that wanted to know if there was a world outside of Burlington, North Carolina. I looked up in the stars one night through the moon roof and I asked my mom, is there a place outside of Burlington, North Carolina? Um, Little did I know that not only would there be other places, but there would be problems throughout society. And what I know now uh, through my journey in faith is that every problem God has placed a prophet to offer and bring forth solutions. I believe we're all created with an inherent sense of calling and being an answer to the issues that plague our society. So at some point last night I said to those who were seated amongst us, um, there are other prophets in here. This is not a position of reverence. This is a position of purpose. And I believe that you find your purpose by identifying your burdens. And it was early on uh, when I identified a burden um, within me for my community. And my response to that was to use the gift of sacred music and my gift of galvanizing my friends as a middle teenager uh, to, to, to provide a more positive pathway, mm-hmm. you know, through, through those teenage years. And so what that looked like was I started a gospel band I thought maybe a dozen people would come out, 40 people came out. And so this became a community choir. But what was even greater than that response was the wraparound. We had our rehearsals, not in a church, but in a community center. And it was also at the night where there was open gym. So what started happening is the spirit led a lot of the athletes to just come into our rehearsals and just witness what was happening. And I knew then I had tapped into a way 
to help myself and my peers to be in a positive and engaging environment, which meant that we were not on the streets, which meant that we were less susceptible uh, to violence, to gangs, um, to pathways that would lead us down the wrong direction. And that actually took me into the choir became notable. Um, I had already done a concert in the White House, but the choir, my choir, uh, received two invitations thereafter, and then we started doing network TV, and and this is as a 15, 16, 17-year-old. And when I went into college, all of, I went with all of that force behind me, and it developed into a campus ministry and our campus ministry developed into a community church. How awesome that is. Well, so there you find yourself getting more and more involved in church. You've gone on to school, gotten more education. How did you become a justice advocate? Yeah, so like things in high school, like why, why do we only have 18 minutes to devour our lunch? You know, why is the school song 70 years old and nobody knows it? I began to like just talk to my principal and push on administration for, hey, can we do this? Can we change this? This is not effective. Didn't really realize what that meant then. Um, So, but the burden was falling on me for the community that I was a part of. And when I entered uh, as a freshman at North Carolina A&T State University, um, the student body president at that time tapped me in my freshman year. And he, he said, it's crazy, you know, after one semester, everybody knows who Drumright is. You need to be um, the liaison to these matters for our campus. And I actually held that office for all of my undergraduate career, A&T, North Carolina A&T, affectionately known as A&T, um, is where Jesse Jackson was the student body president. It is where the sit-in movement um, got its national rise for A&T students went into a Woolworth counter and that created a national movement of sit-ins. So social justice, Um, was ingrained in the fabric of our university. I didn't really know all of that. I didn't really know that Jesse Jackson was a former SGA president. So, of course, when I got a chance to meet him and greet him through my work with the George Floyd family, that was the first thing that I told him. Hey, you know, I'm your predecessor at A&T State University. Um, But as I shared with the, the gathering last night, I began to activate on issues that weren't just like black and white, racialized, politicized social justice matters, but justice for our faculty, you know, to be properly compensated, justice for tuition to stop increasing year after year after year in a public university system. And those things began to inform what I would eventually work with and identify and develop a burden for as an African-American and American Indian black man in America. It's a wonderful story of being faithful to what's in front of you. 
to God's calling today. It's not, it wasn't aspirational. Mm. I want to be in the news. I want to Mm-mm. do these things. Uh, but from there, you have found yourself in some of the more headlined situations. Mm-hmm. And I'd just love to hear your take on the media's role in justice. Wow. It's really important because here in uh, in 2023, and just in case someone's listening to this two or three years from now, I, I've, I've dated our, our broadcast. But right now where we are in society, media has reversed its course on providing coverage for much of the injustices that are still persisting. There are still victim families who are grieving the loss of their loved one with no answers from um, the people who were charged to protect and serve. And as a result of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Arbery, and many others are supposed to be policing um, with greater truth and accountability, but the media has stopped covering those stories. The media is was good to me throughout 2020, uh, with the exception of, of just a couple, but there were hundreds of stories written about our work. But I learned that it only takes one or two to say it's not a good thing and people grabbed a hold of it. I learned that people will bypass a positive story that's highlighting your purpose, and they will reach for um, a detractor's article, you know, a leaning journalist, because journalists are supposed to be objective. Journalists are supposed to allow me to tell my story. in the very least, give me an opportunity um, if there's a narrative out there. I learned through just one article, when a journalist veers off that path and seeks to persuade its readers far to the left or far to the right in either situation, it's dangerous. Mm -hmm. And I begin to be sneered at and I begin to be despised because one journalist alleged something that was not true about our movement, that we were uh, seeking to start a war. And that came from um, every time we would march in Alamance County, the mayor would um, declare a state of emergency. So that made people not want to come and march. And so they planted a a mole in our community meeting, a, a journalist, who was not supposed to be there. Um, This was a community meeting, but we didn't want press. We wanted people to be able to express themselves. Um, But there was a journalist there and the journalist was recording and the journalist captured me saying, we are at war. And the next day on the front page of that local leaning paper, it said, Reverend Drumwright declares war. Well, In the split second after I said, we are at war, I defined it as being an acronym, working against racism. 
That's all we're doing. And I went further and I said, we don't have any tangible weapons. All we have is our raised fists in some cases. And going into 2020, a raised fist to some people was, you know, a weaponized gesture. But if you watch Donald Trump come out of court and go into court every day, he raises his fist now and suddenly it's acceptable. You had athletes that were, you know, desecrated because they raised their fists at the Olympics and now the president of the United States makes it an acceptable thing. It makes my job easier because I raise my fists all the time. That's a sign of a justice worker. But they did not cover whatever else I said. They only captured it. And of course, you know, people complain about this all the time, public figures. But to answer your question, that is the role that media plays in these in their coverage of our work. They can weaponize it if they so choose. And people will read it. People consume their news from headlines now. They don't read stories. Right. Yeah. So you have been accused of, you know, inciting violence Mm -hmm. and and different things and, and been cleared from all of that. Uh, but those are not the headlines. The headlines mm. are the problems. And so I, I just wanted to put that out there that the headlines are not the truth. Mm-hmm. But I also wondered what your uh, father, mm. a sheriff by profession? He was a deputy sheriff, deputy sheriff. in Orange County. Um, He's deceased how, now. But, okay. Uh-huh. How did, you were starting to be active when he was still alive. Um, my father passed when I was 18. Oh, okay. So he, he so had met the activist. In, All right. Yes. What do you think he'd say to you today? Oh, man. Um, you know, off the cuff, I'd like to say that he would be proud. Um, matter of fact, thank you, Holy Spirit. I know he would be proud because my grandparents, his mother and father, were activists. They were... Um, they made an indelible impact on a movement to properly compensate and uh, provide better working conditions for the service workers of the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. That was hidden from me for a long time until the latter years of my grandparents' lives, when UNC students started popping up at our house, at, at, at my grandparents' house. And I was like, you know, what, what are these college students, you know, what are these young white college students coming by here doing? And my grandmother says they're filming a documentary on work that your grandfather and I had done many years ago. And I, I had never known that there was a history of of activism in my family. Now, I myself wasn't didn't even know that that would become a part of my legacy. But when you ask me about my father, it it makes me smile because I know he would probably be saying, "This was already in your DNA." How wonderful! What a, what a legacy, and a legacy that uh, is is important for people to understand 
Uh, you said it last night. The relationship with law enforcement is a positive one. Mm-hmm. It is, it is um, in your DNA, the, both that positive and that uh, opportunity to support law enforcement and to also challenge us, to mm-hmm. challenge us to, to do better, to be better. Mm-hmm. Well, one of the experiences we should probably talk about is your presence in the Derek Chauvin trial. Mm-hmm. What was that experience like for you? It was an experience that I had to ask myself every day, am I really witnessing this with my own two eyes and my own two ears before anything hits the media? It has come past my witness, my presence, my understanding. I was not a lawyer, and I am not a lawyer. I am not a blood relative of the Floyd family. I knew that it was a gift of God that I would be granted the same access as the Floyd family to a trial that was closed from public attendance I couldn't rest some days and nights after what took place in that courtroom earlier in the day. Um, I raised, you know, what I wasn't because there are articles that, you know, uh, stated that I I was a part of the attorney team. There are articles that stated I was a member of the George Floyd family, and those articles still exist today. Because how else would you explain his presence Um, until attorney Crump and his team began to lean more into my my spirit, spiritual leadership and my cleric leadership. And then it became clear to the media, you know, he is providing pastoral care to the family um, throughout this trial. Um, And that was natural because of all of the events that led up to the trial. Um, when Attorney Crump uh, had introduced me to the George Floyd family. And he did that by saying, this young man is doing the work. And I've noticed him all over the country, and he's here to support your case. Well, there were tens of thousands of activists that could have been present that far into the nucleus of the trial and the, you know, all that that took place around it. But God, God favored me. Um, And so every morning, you know, we would start by making sure, I would start by making sure the Floyd family was on their feet. It it wasn't my job to do. Uh, I was down in the lobby every morning with attorney Crump and the rest of the attorneys just waiting for the Floyd family. And I'd say, you know, Ben, let me go up and just knock on their doors. And then it became a part of my job. And so, you know, that's how we started every day, uh, walking to the courthouse together, um, praying together, um, briefing for the day, And as the trial unfolded, 
knowing how important it was for me to be a prayer warrior, as we say in my faith tradition, mm -hmm. when difficult moments, some of the members of the family, some of George's siblings had never even sat through the whole video until they were forced to in trial. And my truth is that I had never sat through the whole video either. I just couldn't. It was too painful until we're in court and it's becoming a part of testimony record. So being there in those difficult moments, being there in moments where there was family friction, you know, because the Floyd family is like every other American family, no different. Um, they're not a perfect family. My family's not a perfect family. I don't know if you come from a perfect family, but they reminded me of my family, you know, and they embraced my presence. They never shunned it. Um, as a person who was there not to be a leech, you know, um, I paid my own way. I funded every flight and I took an average of two to three flights a week. I paid for every hotel bill. There was an offer that, you know, no, no, I haven't. I haven't. Um, people thought that I was compensated for that. People thought that, hey, he got some of the judgment money or they paid him off or he was profiting from all of that. Not the case. I never invited myself in front of a camera. I was always asked and Attorney Crump always uh, wanted me to take advantage of those opportunities as well. Reverend Jeremiah, you're here, you're doing the work. You were doing the work before this, which is why you're here and you need to speak to them. And so that experience, it taught me a lot about how the press covers events. We would do the trial all day, media breaks, interviews during lunch, back in the trial, close the trial around four o'clock every day. And from about four to nine, sometimes as late as 10, we will be sitting behind cameras talking to the press. So one of the tasks that eventually fell um, upon me was to uh, help schedule um, the Floyd family and the attorneys for that 4 p.m. to 9 p.m. as late as 10 p.m. window um, every day, media, every day. Um, I watched this family offer their story to the world, falling asleep sometimes on set, um, not having taken a meal, um, traumatized by the trial itself, um, yet they persisted. There were times where it was just hard to move from in between interviews. Um, it was hard to honor their requests. I mean, you can imagine that every media source, local and major, and every medium, television, radio, news, printed news, journalists, bloggers, Everybody wanted a soundbite. And most people wanted to sit down 
and it, it was overwhelming. So that's how a pastor could end up end up being, you know, uh, a liaison between the press. Um, and so, you know, trying to make sure Mr. Crump was taking care of himself. You know, hey Ben, you know you're you're withering. I, I know I, I, I'm okay. I'm okay. No, Ben, you're withering. You know this should be your last one for today. He's such a gracious person. He's very humble. He's one of the most important people. I'll, I'll say this: he was the most important person that never displayed a moment of arrogance that I've ever met. And I've met kings and queens and presidents and actors and entertainers and politicians and leaders. I've met pretty much everybody but the Pope, you know? And that's saying a lot. Never, I never witnessed a moment of arrogance, which is what drove me to continue to support his work from a different perspective than just limelighting. Um, and so it was my privilege to serve him. I still do. Um, we still do work together. Um, I still get those last minute calls. Hey, drum right, I, you know. <laughs> um, I, as often as I can, still serve the Floyd family. But I was a part of history and I'm grateful for it. And that history isn't finished. And Still so we will be watching you to see how God continues to use you mm. and to see what unfolds. So what, as we, as we look into the future and as we continue to work for communities and countries mm. that are just, mm. what holds you? What yeah. gives you the hope to keep going? You, you actually stole my thunder. Um, you said it, hope. It's right where I was going. I remember as a child hearing Jesse Jackson say, keep hope alive. It sounded really good and it has a great meaning, but now I understand it from an introspective perspective. I understand now what it feels like to not wanna do anything that the world needs you to do. I understand because I battled, will I be viscerated by the opinions of the public today? Um, I battled uh, the disapproval of people who did not understand peaceful, nonviolent um, activism who didn't understand and still don't understand uh, direct action, which means that not only will I write a letter to my legislator, but I'm going to show up at a protest. People who removed, revoked their support for who they thought leader drum right was when they see me stand in front of a wall of militarized and weaponized police and plead for us to continue 
our get out the vote rally after they said, you have to stop. I persisted because I knew that I had met with the chief of police and the sheriff. I knew that we were permitted to be there. I knew our rights. And I knew that we had not broken any laws. And I felt emboldened by the Holy Spirit to stand there and ask them if we have no weapons and we've broken no laws, will you stand down and allow peaceful people to continue our prophetic moment? I knew, and this eventually be, was my saving grace. My lawyers argued this in court. He hadn't broken a single law. He was working as an agent of justice, and you sought to weaponize his work in that moment. There is no evidence for a felonious act, which is why after running those felonies before three grand juries in a neo-Confederate stronghold county, they, they did not indict me. Uh, someone came to me, he said, we gotta get you out of here. They're going to, they're gonna arrest you. And I said, I can't leave. They're already arresting peaceful protesters, but I brought them here. I can't leave them here. Well, Reverend Drumright, you know, they're going to arrest you. And I said, well, so be it. it. It wasn't a moment where I thought about myself. I had to think about what I had led people into, knowing that we had a protocol knowing that there were community meetings that were convened to organize that get out the vote rally, knowing that there were um, missives and, and, and agreements between Justice for the Next Generation, my organization, and law enforcement in place. There were MOUs, all the things that should have kept a peaceful, nonviolent protest peaceful and nonviolent. So in that moment, I had to hope in the Lord. I had to hope that even though I'm going into the prison with a dozen other people who are afraid, I had to hope that heaven would, would back us in the aftermath in the weeks and the months and the years until we were exonerated, until we were vindicated. And there were people that invited me to do what I did in Alamance County who were not there when I ended up on trial and that hurt because I was there because they asked me to be there. Will you help us? in our fight to draw attention to these issues. And it hurt not seeing them stay with me and stick with me. Many were disillusioned 
uh, by the press. Oh, he's a star now. I hadn't done anything I hadn't already been doing. I had already been leading Get Out the Vote marches. That was not my first, and it won't be my last. For a decade, I had been leading marches to the polls. But when the cameras show up, people presumed it's four cameras, and it wasn't. So in the absence of hope, what do we have left? That's why I keep going. Thank you. Thank you for that. Thank you for your time. Uh, we are a country that needs to keep going and needs to keep pursuing this. But with God's help, mm -hmm. hope does draw us forward. Amen. So our guest today has been Reverend Gregory Drumright. The 2023 Michael Lester Went Character Lecturer at the University of Dubuque. And I'm Annalie Ward for Character Explorations from the Went Center for Character Education at the University of Dubuque. Thank you. Thank you. And if people want to follow me, they can do so at Greg Drummond. <laughs>